I'd invite you this morning to take a Bible with me and turn to two places. We're going to look at the Old Testament text for today and also the gospel text for this fourth Sunday of Advent. The Old Testament text comes out of the book of Micah, the fifth chapter, Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through the beginning of verse 5. Micah writes this. As for you, Bethlehem of Ephrathah, though you are the least significant of Judah's forces, one who is to be a ruler in Israel on my behalf will come out of you. His origin is from remote times, from ancient days. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. The rest of his kin will return to the people of Israel. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, they will dwell secure because he will surely become great throughout the earth and he will become one of peace. I'd invite you to put something in Micah and turn with me to Luke, the first chapter. The gospel text today comes from Luke chapter 1. Begin at ver- beginning at verse 39. And if you're with us today and able, I'd invite you to stand in honor of the Lord's word. As we hear Luke 1, verses 39 through 56. Mary got up and hurried to a city in the Judean highlands. She entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. With a loud voice, she blurted out, God has blessed you above all women, and he has blessed the child you carry. Why do I have this honor that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Happy is she who believed that the Lord would fulfill the promise he made to her. And Mary said, With all my heart, I glorify the Lord in the depths of who I am. I rejoice in God, my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled down the powerful. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. And Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then returned to her home. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So this morning, I, I want to go to a weird place and I hope I don't lose you. Um, I've been, uh, I'm almost done with a book, and so forgive me, it's an odd thing actually for a pastor to read, but I have weird curiosities, as you know. I've been reading uh, a kind of memoir uh, by a rock musician, a guy named Dave Grohl. Um, He was the drummer for a band called Nirvana, and then he's the lead singer and kind of leader of a band called the Foo Fighters. Um, It's a fascinating book, actually, about... His childhood growing up in a broken home, um, pretty poor, 
didn't really fit in at school, both academically, but also socially. And so that turns into a kind of passion and love, especially for punk rock music, for this kind of alternative music that he would crank up as loud as he could. And he learned to play drums by putting pillows around his room and just banging on them, right? And he grew long hair and eventually put a band together in his garage. And I've just been fascinated by this sort of rebel culture that was so much a part of his ethos. But I was thinking, and here's where it gets weird, um, really weird, is I've been, I was listening to a podcast that was talking about the origin of kind of the origin stories of the major, especially tech companies in our world today. And, and as they were talking about those origin stories, I realized that the two kind of have something in common, the sort of alternative rock world and the tech industry. And that's this, they both have origin stories that are often described this way. They're called garage myths. Garage myths. That rock bands oftentimes emerge kind of out of this idea that we're going to get a bunch of our friends together in a garage and we're going to play our instruments loud and out of that something good may emerge. Who knows? Um, so you get these stories like these lovely lads in Liverpool who emerge out of a garage to be the Beatles, right? Or in Pasadena, um, folks about 10 years older than me at the church would oftentimes tell stories, those who grew up in Pasadena, about these two long-haired brothers who kind of put a band together in their garage and emerged out of this Pasadena garage as Van Halen. Um, Dave Grohl tells a story about emerging out of a garage in Aberdeen, Washington as Nirvana. But these tech companies also have garage stories. And so I, I was looking up a few of them this week. And the garage myth in the tech world began this way. In 1938, Bill Hewitt and David Packard founded what would become, obviously, the massive company Hewlett Packard or HP. But they founded it in, in Packard's garage in Palo Alto, California. In fact, the small detached garage in which the, the business started back in 1987 was designated as a historic site. So you can go to Palo Alto and visit it bring gold, incense, and myrrh and visit the birthplace of, of HP. Other major tech companies have their own kind of garage myths. Apple was created by Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in 1976 in a garage in Los Altos, California. Around the same time, Bill Gates and Paul Allen were working on a new computer language that would become the seat of Microsoft in a garage in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In 1998, Google was created by Larry Page and Sergey Brin in a garage in Menlo Park, California. And in 1994, a guy, some guy named Jeff Bezos created a company known as Amazon in his garage and home office in a rented house in Bellevue, Washington. And so the myth kind of goes, each of these companies emerged out of these garages and became these kind of corporate giants. I found it very ironic that I searched for the history of Google this week by Googling it. Um, <laughs> but both of them have similar kinds of ideologies. Um, these sort of titans of business that have transformed not just the business world, but so, in so many ways have transformed all the ways that we live. They weren't punk rockers in a garage, but in some ways they were social outcasts, right? They were the nerds and geek. This is revenge of the nerds, right? Coming out of the garage. And they both kind of share that, 
that outsider ethos, this idea that somewhere in a nowhere place, out of that would emerge this transformation. And by the way, they love that ideology. In particular, it's fascinating, even the way that Silicon Valley has lived into that, that, that they have stayed there. They didn't move to Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, but they love the idea that they're kind of this suburb of San Francisco, this place that's identified with hippie culture, right? Of being outsiders. They, and so this sort of garage myth and mythos, if you will, continues to carry through both of those industries as people on the outside write songs of rebellion or code new realities. And out of that emerges this transformation. Again, I might lose you this morning, but I couldn't help but think about those ideas as I was thinking about the text for today. So if you think about this story that the scripture often tells, in fact, this morning, we don't do this very often, so fun, just for fun, let's go all the way back to the book of Exodus. Um, the book of Exodus has a kind of garage ethos, if you will. Exodus begins with Pharaoh, who has control over all things and pronounces a kind of Reality that limits God's people. They are enslaved. They cannot grow beyond certain boundaries. Pharaoh has spoken, and that's the way it is. This is the way life now works. Hear the word from Pharaoh. But as I love to point out, the people of God read the story of Exodus never knowing Pharaoh's name. But we're barely into the story, and these two marginalized midwives named Shifra and Pua emerge in the story, if you'll hang with me this morning, as kind of ancient punk rockers <laughs> who say to the system, forget you. We are not going to obey Pharaoh's law, but we are going to find subversive ways to resist the kind of way Pharaoh wants the world structured and we are going to protect these Hebrew babies. And not only Shifra and Pua, but then the mother and sister of Moses join the band in the garage and decide to protect Moses and they add one more piece and they even get Pharaoh's daughter worked into the whole thing. And they become this subversive force that undoes the power of Pharaoh. Now you're not excited about that, but that's really cool, right? They're like ancient versions of the Go-Go's. Um, all girl band, that, that, was, that went too far. Um, <laughs> children of the 80s were with me there. In fact, it's fascinating to me that after the people of God come out of the Red Sea, we actually don't know Moses' mother and sister's names until later in Exodus. We finally discover that Moses' sister's name is Miriam. And I believe it's in chapter 15 of Exodus. When they get out of the Red Sea, Miriam actually gets her own song. Now Moses sings a song. It's fairly lengthy. But Miriam gets a song too. And if you will, in my imagination today... 
Miriam gets this headbanging song that goes something like this. God has moved and he has thrown horse and rider into the sea. Right? Like, I mean, come on, hang with me. I know it sounds pretty, but this is a resist the power, overturn the world song. He has thrown horse and rider into the sea. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Thank you. In 1 Samuel, the people of God are out of exile and they've passed through the wilderness and now through the period of the judges. But even though they've done that, things still aren't really the way they're supposed to be. They haven't really fully learned and integrated the ways of God into their lives. Everybody seems to just kind of do what's right in their own eyes. And importantly, in the book of Samuel, even the priests, the religious group, the folks who are supposed to represent us to God and especially represent God back to us on a daily basis, Eli and his sons have become corrupt. The problem is not that Israel isn't religious. The problem is that their religion sing songs that kind of reflect more of the ethos of Pharaoh than of the Yahweh who delivered them. And so Hannah, unable to have a child, prays and God gives to her this gift, this gift of a child that she gives back to the tabernacle and to the priesthood. But it's a great story about God's intervention in a way that now Hannah becomes the bearer of this newness that's going to break out into the world, this one whose name means to hear God. And Samuel is going to come, and Samuel is going to be this marginalized rebel right here in the midst of God's people who overturns Eli. And not only that, when the kingship, when Saul moves the kingdom away from God's purposes, Samuel is going to go to this little remote town called Bethlehem, this nowhereville. And he's going to have a barbecue with Jesse and his sons. And you know the story, he's there to anoint a new king, but it's not Eliab, it's not any of the brothers. And finally, he gets down and there's none left. And he says to Jesse, are there any sons yet remaining? And most of you know my three favorite Hebrew words are tohu, bohu, and then this word. When Jesse says, well, there remains yet the hakaton, a Hebrew word that basically means there's the runt of the litter, the leftover, the, the youngest. But we met with the guidance counselor. His tests aren't great. Not really college material. So he, he's keeping the sheep. But it's out of that subversive life, out of that marginalization, out of a nowhere place like Bethlehem emerges David and the seed of a recreation. One who will not enter into power by misusing it, but one who will, out of that shepherding background, learn to shepherd God's people the way God shepherds God's people. You with me? And just to top it off, Hannah gets her own song. Wow! 
It's a rebel song. It's along the lines of Miriam's song. It's a song about the God who will not stand by and let injustice remain, but rah, comes into the world in power and might and overturns the tables and brings down the mighty and exalts the lowly and hears the cries of those who nobody else hears. Ah, crank it up, Hannah. It's really out of that that the Micah text emerges. The prophet Micah, that dude's a punk rocker. Read the text. Micah is not happy with the way things are running. Scholars are kind of uncertain as to when Micah emerges in Israel's history. Some think Micah comes from around 700 or so during a time when Jerusalem is threatened by the Assyrians. Some think Micah is a little later, somewhere in the 580s or so, at a time when Babylon is threatening Jerusalem. Either way, it is not happy times in Jerusalem. It is time of threat and chaos. It is a time when the system is not working. It is a time when those who are leading Judah and Israel are leading them astray and not even the priesthood is getting it right. The whole system is kind of a mess and corrupt. And so the text that we read in chapter five is basically Micah saying this, wow, start over. It's time for a do-over. It's time for God to move, wipe the slate clean, and go back to Bethlehem. So many scholars would argue Micah is not so much predicting a time when a ruler will come, although it fulfills that expectation when Jesus does. But in the context, Micah is saying, come on, we need a do-over. We need to start all over. So God, go back to the beginning. Go back to that nowhereville that Samuel went to. Grab a shepherd again. We're done with the system. We're done with these authorities who lead us astray. We're done with these corrupt priests. Bring us somebody who will lead us like a shepherd. Go back to Bethlehem if you have to and bring somebody out. Are you with me? Wow. What a song. In our gospel text this morning, in a social location basically called nowhere. In fact, it's so nowhere, Luke, who loves to tell us about places, just says, well, somewhere in the hill country. <laughs> Where were they? I don't know, over there. Two women, again. Mary and Elizabeth encounter each other. One, old and barren, seem to have heard this story before. Elizabeth embodies all that God has done in the past through those rock stars like Hannah. God bringing newness in the midst of old brokenness. And here God is doing it again and again, the one that will emerge from her. Now, I know some of you aren't happy with this metaphor, but if there is a rock star in the scripture, it's John the Baptist. He's got the hair, he's got the clothes. 
I'm out there screaming at people, right? There's a festival going on in the wilderness, right? Like, I mean, come on now. Elizabeth is going to bring forth this rebel prophet. Mary, young and unmarried, carries within her the seed of God's brand new creation. And there's this powerful moment where out in the middle of nowhere, they show up together and the spirit comes and the prophet leaps. There's this bringing together of all that God has done in the past with now all that God is going to do in the newness. And out of it comes a song. Mary grabs her guitar. Wow. Crank it up. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, right? He has seen me in my loneliness. He has seen me in my marginalization. He has heard my cries. The Lord is coming. And he's coming to bring down the mighty and exalt the lowly. Wow. Wow. Come on, right? What a song. What a song of newness and overturning and, oh, the God who moves among those on the margins, bringing newness and new life. And now it will come in this one who we will call God with us. Luke is actually quite fascinating. When he gives us Mary's song, first of all, notice it's not just a song of things that God is going to do. For every verb that Mary includes in this song is in the past tense. If you have your Bible still open, especially when she gets to the bridge in the last chorus, verse 51. Notice these verbs. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts. He has pulled down the powerful and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel. It's a fascinating song. It's not just about what God is going to do. It's about the reality of what God, through this one that she is carrying, has done. That's why this season is so important for us because we gather as a people who are already part of the new creation but still waiting for it. Amen. And so it's right that we can use verbs that say what God has done, but it's also we sing that song in expectation of what God will finally and ultimately do. That Mary, what a rebel. Some scholars think that this visitation between Elizabeth and Mary for Luke, again, Luke loves to do a couple of things. Luke loves to tell us about the Holy Spirit. Certainly all the gospel writers will talk about the Holy Spirit, but Luke just loves to point out all the times when the Holy Spirit shows up and how important the Holy Spirit is to the work that God is doing in the world. But Luke also loves to kind of give us precursors of what we're doing today. 
He loves to give us little kind of glimpses of worship services. So if you're still with me, many scholars argue this is Luke's first church gathering. That up in the wilderness, up in the highlands, the first two disciples, Elizabeth and Mary, show up. And here's how they show up. They come from different places and they gather together. And when they gather together, the Holy Spirit shows up, empowers them. And the seed of the new creation that is not theirs in their own strength, but has been given to them by a gift from God. The seed of a new creation leaps with joy within them. And they encourage and bless, and then they sing songs about God's overturning of the world. And then they go in expectation of what God is now going to do. Well, you weren't excited about that. But how cool is that? That they are these two marginalized folk, empowered by the Spirit, encountering the newness God is bringing in and through them, singing songs of rebellion against the broken systems of the world and expecting God to move. Oh. You see, it is what we are doing this morning. <laughs> it is what we do as we gather to worship. We are coming from all of the different places, sometimes places of marginalization, but we're gathering together, empowered by the Spirit, encouraged by what is God is doing in our midst singing songs of God's turning of the tables and then going into the world expectant for what God is going to do and is doing and has done. If I could go back to the garage myths for a minute. One of the crazy things about that is what do you do? And this is really a problem. What do you do if you're a teenage outcast with long hair and you don't fit in the system and you get your friends together in a garage and you make loud noise and you write songs about how bad the system is and how it needs to be overturned. What happens if you succeed? <laughs> what happens if you sell a bunch of albums? Actually, the book, Dave, Dave's book is about the tension of what happens when a rebel becomes normal. It's part of his friend Kurt Cobain's problem. What happens when the outsider has their face on every magazine in the world? But those companies that started in those garages, they're now worth $7 trillion with the T, $7 trillion. What do you do when you started in a garage and you now run the world? It's funny, each of those companies, again, has tried their best to do some things that fit that sort of rebel spirit. So places like Google, I have a friend that works at Google. Rather than kind of build a skyscraper where everybody has cubicles, right? They build a campus, no ties are allowed. Come on. Rebel yell this morning. No ties allowed. They skateboard and they bike around. They do all these things, right? 
Why? Because they're trying to be the system that isn't the system. And we can argue about how effective that has been. Or whether we now just look like reflections of the system that isn't the system that is now their system, right? Here's what each of the texts wonders. And I think it's the question that, that it poses to us today. When I read these texts, and especially in the light of the way that I'm trying to help you see them today, I actually think about some churches that I've encountered in my life. Um, a, a few years ago, um, a handful of us went down to Mexico and we went to this church. I loved it. We had to take four wheelers to get up there. It was up at the top of this mountain. And I, to use the word church, you have to kind of use air quotes here. It was really just kind of full, four poles with palm branches over the top of it to serve as a kind of shelter. I think about them often. The only way to get to that church was either to ride a motorcycle or to walk from the villages all around it. I think about the, the saints who have gathered there already today. Folks on the margins in a world that is largely structured against them who come and gather around these texts and they are filled with the spirit and the new creation that's at work in them leaps with joy as they begin to sing about the one who sees them and hears them and moves in ways that bring about redemption and a new creation through them. A number of years ago, my dad and I helped build a couple of churches and that is a very strong word. <laughs> really four walls that are about as big as this area right here in a little village in the Amazon of Peru. I think about our sisters and brothers who have gathered there for worship this morning, who come from these marginalized places where the world is set against them, but they come and they hear the songs of, of God that are songs that hear their cries and fill them with the spirit and empower them to be a source of a new creation in the world. They're, they're God's kind of people. They're the Shifras and the Puas. They are the Miriams and the Hannahs, the Elizabeths, the Marys. We don't have that problem this morning. Those are not palm branches up there. The windows are beautiful. There's a new air conditioning in the room. The question the text poses for us this morning is have we become the religious of Micah's day? Or of Pharaoh's day? Or of Pilate's day? Caiaphas's day? Annas' day, who have become a reflection 
and keeper of the old and lost what it means to be the vessels of the new. For today, thanks be to God, this beautiful room that we've been given to gather in, what we do is still the same. We come as those who bear within us the hopes of God's new creation. And as we gather together, the joy of that leaps within us and we sing these songs of rebellion and now we go into the world to be instruments of that new creation. And if we aren't, God help us. He will find a Bethlehem and do it again. Micah says he is good to his word. He will do it again. So I want us to sing. This is now, some of you aren't going to think this is kind of a rebel song, but it is a rebel song. Charles Wesley wrote it. That guy was a rocker. Listen to these words. Hark the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled, joyful all, you nations rise, join the triumphs of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ. Do you hear it, Micah? Christ is born in Bethlehem. So hark the herald angels sing, wow, glory to the newborn king. There's a fourth verse that we don't sing very often because it doesn't rhyme very well. <laughs> and the words are kind of weird. But oh, it is. Here's Charles Wesley's fourth verse Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Oh. Come on, rise, conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Oh, that is... Mm. Put to death all of those dark places, all the evil, even within us. And then these words, Adam's likeness now efface. I love this line. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above. And today in particular, we celebrate this. Reinstate us in thy love. Hark the herald, angels sing. Glory, glory, glory to the one who overturns the tables and makes all things new. Amen. Glory to the newborn king. Would you stand with me this morning?
Just our voices on that third verse again. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. today um, not just in this room but around the world Mary's and Elizabeth's Shifra's and Pua's Hannah's and Samuel's we have come today tired of what sin does in the world and tired of what it does to us So we come longing to be filled with your spirit, longing to have that new creation life within us, encouraged and leaping, longing 
for you to work through us to make all things new. And so we come and we sing radical songs of upheaval. Mendelssohn's tune is so sweet. We have overlooked the radicalness of what we've just sung. Hail, hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Bring your light and life. Bring your healing. But come in your glory so that we no more may die. Raise up those broken and hurting in the earth. Transform us, stamp your image in our hearts. Give us second birth, we pray. May all creation, angels included, may we sing glory to the newborn king. Transform us today, we pray. Make us the body of Christ today, we pray. And may the God who brings peace and hope and joy and love. May he sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies, may they be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he is faithful. And he will go back to Bethlehem. He will keep restoring us. He will keep working until he makes all things new. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Go in his peace.